Support for this podcast comes from Microsoft Surface. Introducing Microsoft Surface Laptop Go. Available in three colors, its thin light design, built-in HD camera, and touchscreen turns any space into your workspace. More at surface.com slash laptop go. I, I, I didn't know personally know Brandon, uh, of course. Hadn't even heard his name until several weeks ago. But I knew him, you know, in the sense that I knew Emmett Teo, Eric Gardner, right? I, 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 and I knew them because as a black man, I know that what happened to them can happen to me. And of course, being on death row, you know, brings me even closer to that reality. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the 730 Podcast, and I'm your host, Wally White. The reason we call this the 730 Podcast is because in the 90s song Ebonics, the late great Big L raps, If you 730, that means you crazy. Some might call me 730. I was recently hospitalized and diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and I'm trying to make sense of an issue both for myself and my audience that's too often misunderstood. I'm not a mental health expert. But I'm here to engage mental health professionals, athletes, artists, and other cultural influencers in conversations that explore how trauma and mental illness intersect with black culture. Keith Lamar and I have developed quite the brotherhood. Some of you guys may have listened to him on episode 20 love is the only freedom while talking to him on friday night he expressed his desire to come back on 7:30, and he particularly wanted to talk about some of the things going on right now most notably the execution of brandon bernard he also wanted to talk about his book club that he recently launched with some high school students in new york city as well as uh, his thoughts on god and religion and spirituality so I always want to try to amplify his voice as much as possible and was thrilled that he wanted to come back on. I think this was a perfect time. In the aftermath of Brandon Bernard's execution, the support for Keith has really been exponential and it's an unfortunate reality that one black life has to be taken for another one um, to be seen. It's just kind of the, the state of the world we live in and as I always say, it's, we should really try to push to make sure that Keith doesn't become another hashtag. So I don't want to talk too much about the episode or about Keith. I'm going to jump right into this conversation and and let Keith do the rest. So here it is. Keith, tell, tell me, I know you've been following a lot of what's been going on with the, with the election and um, Trump's response to the election. Can you share some of your thoughts on that? I know you've been thinking a lot about it lately. I've been thinking a whole lot about it. Uh, obviously, you can't um, turn the TV on without seeing some new scandal that Trump is, or some new lawsuit or whatever that Trump is um, trying to undo the fact that he, he lost, man. Um, so, yeah, I've been watching that, laughing, smiling, you know, at, you know, how uh, arrogant this, this, this dude is. But, you know, it's hard, it's hard for me personally to even really uh, talk about Donald Trump, you know, think about it, thinking about him kind of, you know, brings up a bad taste in my mouth, man, literally. You know, something comes up in, in me, you know. I mean, you know, this is a deeply distasteful dude, so so obviously gracious and entitled, and it's easy, you know, to look at him and see everything that's wrong with this country, right? You know, and that kind of makes it even easier to kind of blame him for all, uh, you know, the ugliness that we've experienced over the past four years of his presidency. 
you know, but four years is nothing like uh, the 400 years our people have been catching hell in this country. You know, and I think we have to acknowledge that, you know, as disgusting as this dude is, he did create racism. You know, he didn't, um, you know, spark the, the flame that, you know, um, uh, murdered George Floyd or Eric Gardner, Sandra Bland. You know, he made a fashion book, you know, I think we could say that, right? He gave it license, permitted it to come out of hiding. And, you know, for that, you know, he should be rejected. He should be called to the carpet. And I think he has. I think that's what the election was about. People didn't necessarily. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. You know, that's what the election was about, I think. I don't, I don't think people necessarily voted for Biden. I think they voted against Trump. But, but but even with that, even with the fact that Trump is, would no longer be the president, we still have to contend with the fact that over 70 million people were perfectly willing to continue down this racist and regressive road to, you know, God knows where. You know, these people can't be voted out of existence. Like we can vote someone out of office, you know. You know they're still um, here to sit on juries, to police black and brown neighborhoods, to work in prisons, and to kill us with impunity. So with or without Trump, you know, we're still in danger, you know. You know, so, you know, I think people need to really, really be vigilant uh, uh, and, and participate and get involved in the process, uh, uh, especially as it relates to what goes on in their own communities and whatnot. Yeah, so, yeah, that's what I think about, about Trump, man. You know, when we talked last, I think we talked back in August, it was pro like basically the middle of the pandemic. There was really no talks about a virus, uh, um, a vaccination or anything like that. And now there's, you know, there's there's talks about the vaccination, but, you know, the, the cases have spiked again. And I know that's had a, a really big impact on you and your world on the inside. Uh, I, I'm wondering if you can kind of speak to that and, and give people a little idea of what and how this pandemic is affecting you right now. Well, you know, initially when it, back in March, when it all hit the fan somewhat, uh, it was a prison here in Ohio, Marion, Marion prison that um, uh, experienced a kind of uh, 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 outbreak the virus. A lot of prisoners had contracted, a lot of guards had contracted it, and they moved in the National Guard. And, you know, we here where I'm at, in the Supermax prison, we thought that we was somehow exempt from all of that because we're isolated, right? Uh, the only way we can catch the virus in here is if the guards bring it in. And so for a long time, for, you know, several months, from March until relatively recent, uh, we've been kind of exempt from the whole thing. But it's been a, a, a outbreak here in the, it's in the Supermax prison. You know, the National Guard is here now where, I'm at, where I am. And, um, yeah, it's frightening, man, because here in prison, you, you think about people, how many people in poor communities and, and um, out in society who are being inflicted um, out of proportion with the larger society, with the virus being killed, uh, 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 dying, losing their lives and whatnot. You can imagine what, it, what, what that means for someone that's in my situation. And so it, it's frightening, man. I've been doing everything I can, obviously, to try to um, stay, um, stay safe. 
you know, wash my hands, you know, make sure that I'm monitoring my uh, uh, my distance and interactions. I don't have many interactions with with the, with the guards, but the one or two times that I interact with them, I make sure I immediately wash my hands afterwards and whatnot. But yeah, yeah, it's, it's on the rise here inside the supermax, man. And so I, I guess no one is exempt, and I think that's the larger lesson in all of this that we all kind of connected to this thing, and that we all have to, you know, start thinking about uh, each other and how we. Uh, move through this society, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, you and you said the National Guard is in in the prison. Can you explain to to my audience why the National Guard is there? Well, um, because a lot of the guards who have contracted the virus, they can no longer work. They have to quarantine for over two weeks, and based on uh, um, the the last time the last time I checked, over sixty guards had come down with the, with the virus, which is essentially a whole shift. Uh, uh, and so the National Guard has been called in to fill in for those vacancies, right? And um, they have gone from three shifts to two shifts, two 12-hour shifts from six to six. And so this has kind of limited our, our movement, you know, to and from the kiosk where that's the place where I send out my emails and stay in contact with my family and, and friends and whatnot. And so it's been kind of an adjustment that I've had to make over the past couple of weeks or so, you know, trying and dealing with the, the outbreak here in, inside the prison. But, yeah, that's why the National Guard are here to kind of take the uh, to stand in for the guards who are out sick. So more recently in Ohio, uh, this brother, Casey Goodson, was shot fatally by an Ohio sh- sheriff deputy, I believe. With all the stuff that's been going on with Black Lives Matter and, you know, since George Floyd, I- I'm curious to, to hear your thoughts on this particular case uh, in the context of, of everything that's going on in, in our world right now. I mean, it's just incredible that this, these things continue to happen. I mean, we had we had these things happen. George Floyd, um, Breonna Taylor, and you see this groundswell of protest. People taken to the streets to protest, and, and, and that's all well and fine. But it, you would think that this would kind of put a damper on police uh, um, acting in these uh, dangerous and violent ways. But it, it, it seems to have the opposite effect. It doesn't really do anything in terms of decreasing the violence. You know, I've been I've been involved in a couple of forums recently with academics and whatnot, and we've been discussing implicit bias. And uh, you know, a few years back, I was reading this book uh, by Malcolm Gladwell called Blink, and it's a testimony on implicit bias. And I discovered that even I, you know, have implicit biases towards black people. And you know, that kind of uh, puzzled me for a minute. But when you think about it, 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 it's, you know, natural because we all kind of told the same stories, the same narrative, right? And so when you talk about implicit bias, things that we don't, not, not that we don't walk around conscious of, you know, all of us have had those things. But this is what I'm talking about. What we're talking about is not implicit bias, it's explicit bias, you know, um, a few weeks before Casey was murdered, a white murderer was pulled over by the same police, uh, uh, Highway State Patrol, and he was armed. He had a gun sitting on his lap. He informed the officers of that, of that fact and, and even told them that he would shoot them, that he knew his rights, that he was, you know, uh, uh, allowed uh, to, you know, carry this weapon and that there was no reason for him to be pulled over. And they had opened his door and and was about to remove and he pulled the door shut and took off. 
now, you know, people, uh, of course, uh, 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 saw this and, and said that, you know, if this was a, a black person, he would have been killed. Well, a few days after that, a black man was killed in, in a somewhat similar incident. You know, they, they, they're saying that Casey was armed. That's what the police... This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. They're saying Casey was armed. That's what the police are, are saying, at least. You know, but there's there's a, a, a reason to believe that he was armed with a Subway sandwich and that he was entering to his house. Even if he was armed, it, it, as it turns out, he had a license to carry. And so, you know, we have to, you know, unpack what, what all that means, what's legal and illegal when, from the standpoint of the, of, of the police, right? You know, and... You know, with respect to the defund the police thing, you know, I've been hearing a whole lot about that over the past few months, you know, since George Floyd's execution. I mean, I think we can call it that, right? This man was killed in daylight. Uh, uh, I think we can call that an execution. You know, but as soon as I heard uh, the slogan being tossed around, I thought to myself, uh-oh, uh-oh. You know, someone is going to have a problem with the phrasing of that. It was the same way when black people started screaming black power back in the 70s, you know. And people had a problem with that. But not really with the with the words so much, but with the request that the words were making. You know, black power was about self-determination, about black people determining for themselves what their lives should be. You know, that's what white, white people had a problem with. You know, we being their former slaves and all. And, of course, you know, in this country, you can't come right out and say things like that. If you're white, you can't say the word nigger, for example. You can feel it. You can you can act on it, but you can't say it. So words carry a lot of weight in this country. Perception is is, is, is morality. Or Amari uh, 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 Baraka, he once said that uh, uh, aesthetics is, 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 is uh, morality. You know, how things look, you know. And then that's, you know, uh, uh, true in this country more than anything. You know, so, you know, when, when, when people say defund the police, those are kind of like fighting words. You know, people, mainly white people, have a knee-jerk reaction to words like that. You hit a nerve, you know, like the words emancipation, proclamation. White people don't like to hear that shit either, you know. They understand what we're talking about, though, you know, uh, uh, when we ask or when we call for defunding the police. You know, but people benefit from the way things are, Wiley, as hard as that is to imagine. You know, I mean, young black brothers killing each other in the ghetto, selling drugs in their communities and whatnot. People in power benefit from all that. Yeah, I remember... Allowed, you know? yeah. No, I was going to say, I remember the other day we were talking and one of the things that you said that, that really um, stuck out to me was you said this whole thing is a business and, and you were you were more so alluding to the the situation that you're in in prison and um, being on death row and all that stuff. And, you know, people talk about prison industrial complex all the time. But yeah. mm-hmm. I, I'm, I, I know you had some thoughts on of it on some thoughts on it that really go beyond what people's, you know, uh, basic understanding of the prison prison industrial complex is. So I was wondering if you could actually even talk about that a little bit. I mean, when I, when I say people benefit from the way things are, I'm, I'm mainly talking about rich people. 
I mean, they claim to want to reduce crime. They claim to want to uh, reduce recidivism and all these things. But to do that, they have to give back some of the money that they've taken out of the system. Right? And they don't want to do that. You know, because poverty and crime are directly correlated. Everybody knows that. I mean, not everybody, but people who have studied the issue, they know that. And this is, and they have suggested, made recommendations on how to alleviate the conditions that create crime. Right? You know, so when we're talking about, uh, 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 you know, prisons and, and prisoners, you know, we're talking about uh, uh, poverty and all these things. It's not like we, we're speaking into a vacuum. People know these things exist and why they exist. There's, 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 you know, there's no, you know, secret about it. You know, when I first came to to prison and, and when I first really started trying to grapple with why I, 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 I uh, uh, why I was here, and I started reading all these books and started uncovering all these things, it just really, really, you know, struck me that you know this is a, basically a setup. You know, poor people being pitted against poor people. I mean, the people who work in these places are the same people who would have been working in the mills and factory in these surrounding area right here. And it just so happens that the prisons that are now in these, you know, rural communities are, you know, in the exact same place or adjacent to the mills and factory that used to exist here. That's no coincidence. You know, so, you know, when people talk about defunding the police, maybe that's a poor choice of words because it gives people who don't want to change things or who want to keep things the same an excuse to kind of fight against that or push back against that. But what they're really asking for is a reallocation of funds that will help alleviate the conditions that create crime, which theoretically is the same thing that the police are supposed to be doing. So why would anybody have a problem with that if that's truly your, your goal, to reduce crime? I mean, if we have everything we need, food, clothing, shelter, good education for our children, and a bridge, you know, to a functional future, we wouldn't need the police. At least not the heavily armed robots we see in our communities, man. But it's cheaper for, from the standpoint of the rich to arm these people, these other poor people, and suffer whatever casualty step that that bring about than it is to have a real com conversation about economic justice and social justice in this country and what we as society owe each other. So we get caught up in all these semantics and, uh, and, and, and whatnot and pretend that we don't understand perfect English. You know, but that's the game that, that, that they play, uh, Wally. You know, if, if somebody don't want to give you something, they make it hard. And, and on the flip side of that, if if if, they, if people want to act against your interest, they make that easy. I mean, I won't say how, but you won't believe how easy it is to get drugs into these places. And I'm in a supermax prison. But if you try to get some art supplies, let's say, like some graphite pencils or some, some paintbrushes or some paint, man, this is the hardest thing in the world. Why is that? And if, if it's true of your goal to reduce recidivism, me becoming an artist, you know, will help it further, it, it help it, it's furtherance of that goal. Right. But me becoming a so don't, you know, necessitate or, or create the justification for more presence. So we don't want that. We want to make that as difficult as possible. And so I just think it's, you know, uh, uh, disingenuous for people in power to, you know, kind of stand, you know, you know, stand up as if they're in righteous 
indignation when people talk about defunding the police. What we really ask is for, for you to give some of that money back. To put some of that money you have taken out of the system back into the system so people can survive, so people can live. You know, so that's, that's what defund the police to me is all about. It's not like a dirty word to me. I understand where people are coming from. At least Garza, you know, in her, her recent book, uh, The Purpose of Power, she ta- she's talking about uh, about that. Obviously, she was one of the first ones to start talking about that, along with Angela Davis, of course, you know. And one of the things that she said recently is that, that kind of struck me. She said that nobody is really uh, afraid of disappointing black people. You know, we know Joe Biden, who's the president-elect, uh, uh, was one of the main architects of the crime bill. We know that. And he has came out and has run up to the election and said that that was a mistake. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on on his more recent revelation in regard to that. I mean, that's what Alicia was talking about. That's all people have to say. You know, I could kill your whole family, burn down your house, and, and, and destroy everything you love. And the only thing I have to say is, you know, you know, my bad. That, that, that's not enough. If you get in the car accident and you total somebody's car, you have to repair that. You have to make them whole again. And so it's not enough for, you know, Joe Biden to say, you know, you know, my bad. You have to undo that mistake if it's a mistake. And so that means, you know, uh, 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 revisiting the, the mass incarceration and start letting, you know, some of these people go. You know, the majority of people are in here, uh, one in five, I believe, are here because of drug-related uh, 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 crimes. They should immediately be cut loose if you're sincere in, 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 in your belief that you, you, the crime bill was a mistake. Because that's what the crime bill revolves around. Punishing people for, 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 for getting caught up in the crack cocaine epidemic. And so, it, yeah, I, I, but, but it's, it's not for Biden to change these things. People have to make him demand that he change these things. Otherwise, they remain the same because they benefit, from, people in power benefit from the status quo. That's what I'm trying to say, Wally. You know, people benefit from the way things are, you know. You know, that's why the police are so against defunding. That's why the people here in prison are so against recidivism or, you know, reducing crime. Because this is thing, how they put food on their table. And this is how those in power set it up to be, man. They, that's how they pit, pit us against. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. You know, this stuff is so closely related that when you say defund the police, the uh, police officer say, you're trying to take food out of my mouth. You're trying to deprive my kids of a future, of an education, the very things that we are being deprived of and asking for relief. So you've been involved with some real beautiful things in regards to your Native Son Literacy Program. And I know more recently you've extended that to um, launch a book club with uh, some high school students in New York City. I'm wondering if you could kind of... Talk about that a little bit, what that experience has been like for you, uh, what you're reading with the kids, and, and why you're reading uh, the text that you're reading with, with the students that you're, you're doing this book club with. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been, you know, very rewarding, man. Um, recently, uh, we've been reading a, a book by this guy, this author named Jeff Hobbs, and the name of the book is called The Short and Tragic Life of Robert Peace a brother that lived not too far from New York and Newark, uh, New Jersey. 
who you know grew up in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the ghetto in the hood um but um somehow made it to Yale and graduated but died tragically in, in the hood um selling drugs and so it's it's, it's an incredible story you know very well written uh um you know, Jeff was uh, gracious enough to send copies in to the students, man, and, and we've been, you know, working our way through that, and, and you know, it's been, you know, real uh, um, uh, satisfying, man, to engage with these young people and have them kind of, you know, find themselves in that story, even though the story kind of uh, 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 happens outside of the, 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 the environment that they are growing up in. And, you know, I think that's, you know, helping them develop empathy for people. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. I think by reading these kind of stories help young people develop empathy and, um, you know, and a deeper awareness of of some of the uh, struggles that other people uh, are trying to navigate in environments that might be, you know, so much different from the ones that they are living living in, you know. So that's been all uh, all a plus for me. I think it's important work, man. Um, definitely the coolest thing I've done today. Uh, I mean, you've been with me uh, and know how rewarding it is to read along with young people and hear them explain why certain things in the story spoke to them. You know, we've, we've had that experience uh, recently, you and I. I live for that shit, man. Um, you know, I tell people all the time that books saved my life. And that, that that's not an exaggeration, uh, Wally. You know, had I not read Nelson Mandela's Long Walk to Freedom, you know, I would have never known how long that walk could be. And maybe I would have given up by now. You know, I, I took uh, seriously uh, James Baldwin's uh, um, advice that we are to navigate this passage of life terrible as it may be, as nobly as we possibly can for the sake of those who are coming behind. You know, so, so the reading project is for the sake of those who are following in my footsteps. And, and, and hopefully it'll help give them, you know, the ability to see the traps along the way, you know, and, you know, by developing that critical faculty, which can only, you know, come through reading or, or from painful experience or what some people call, you know, wisdom. You know, these 17, 16, 17-year-old kids we're talking about. So, you know, I think it's unfair to ask them to go through some of the pain that that, that, that wisdom uh, uh, requires. You know, um, yeah. I was going to say, has there been a moment um, since doing this book club that's really stuck out to you? Like, was there like an aha moment where you're like, man, this is this is like what, what it's about? I mean, um in the last exchange we had, uh, you know, one of the things that we do, we, we, we assign chapters, as you know, and we ask the students to highlight whatever sticks out to them, whatever jumps out, whatever resonates, highlight it, uh, uh, and um, tell us why that, why that um, uh, jumped out for you. And, and, uh, and while we're, we're doing this, uh, it occurred to some of us kind of simultaneously that we were all highlighting, highlighting some of the same passages, right? And uh, one of the students, uh, um, a, young, a young woman, young lady, uh, said that, you know, I think that means something, that we're all touching on the same uh, topics, that these things are speaking to all of us in the same way. 
and and and, and I, I thought the same thing. I, I, and and for me being in, in, in prison, um, the fact that I'm touching on or lighting on some of the same uh, uh, thoughts and ideals that these students means that my sensibilities are still intact. And, and this is, has been a way for me indirectly to kind of uh, uh, affirm my own humanity, you know, by having this exchange with these young people. You know, I don't really, I don't really get a lot out of talking to older people so much because, you know, their minds are already made up. They already had a fixed ideas about what they think life is about and whatnot. And, and, and so I, I wouldn't even waste one second speaking to somebody like Donald Trump. You know, that's a done deal. But young people, even young people who come from privilege, if you can engage them in a book, engross them in reading the story of somebody else, man, they will open their minds to that. They, and eventually, once they open their minds, their hearts will also open. Because I, I know that's how that happens through books. That's the reason why I started the project. You know, mainly or principally to get books into juvenile uh, delinquents or at-risk youth, as they're sometimes called, and, you know, to help them start, you know, uh, uh, cultivating the light inside themselves. So, yeah, man, you know, having this reading project, uh, it, it has been very rewarding, very rewarding, man. Yeah. Yeah, it's been super cool to um, to do this, that project with you, and um, I, know the, yeah, yeah. I know the students really... Uh, they really appreciate it. They really appreciate the time that that you've given them, and um, they get they get really excited about it. They you know they ask me, Wally, what chapters are we reading for for the next session? Like Trump's push to uh, execute all these people before he leaves his office, as unprecedented and as tragic as it is, it's um, it's at least bringing light to some of the other people that have been on death row, like yourself. Uh, I know there's been like an uptick in um, petition signatures on your behalf over the last few days. And I just wanted to, um, you know, check in with you and, and get your thoughts on on all this stuff in regards to Brandon Bernard and um, uh, Purvis and all these other people that are, are scheduled to be executed. And um, what what you what you're thinking right now? I mean, you say Trump and all these people. But it's basically four black men and one white woman. But the emphasis obviously is on the four black men. I know it's a big leap to think that Trump uh, is using these executions as a way to punish black men for not voting for him. But I, I think it's plausible. When you think about Brandon and Bernard, you know, it's devastating whenever shit like that happens, Wiley. You know, you start to wonder, you know, you like, what's the point? And the point, I think, is to make people feel powerless. When someone like George Floyd is murdered in broad daylight, you know, it sends shockwaves through the system. Same thing with state-sanctioned murders. Man. It sends messages, you know. And, and the message is that we can kill you if you get out of line. And the more random and arbitrary the killing is, the more fear it induces in people. I, I, I didn't know personally know Brandon, uh, of course. Hadn't even heard his name until several weeks ago. But I knew him, you know, in the sense that I knew Emmett Teal, Eric Gardner, right? I, 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 and I knew them because as a black man, I know that what happened to them can happen to me. And of course, being on death row, you know, brings me even closer to that reality. It's infuriating, Wiley, man. 
You know, that's really the only word I, I can use to describe it. It's, it's maddening. And what I really, really hate about it is that it happens so frequently that it's considered normal. I mean, no, nobody woke up the next day and, and, and was surprised that they went forward with the execution. And, you know, you know, I woke up, turned on the news, and when I saw the announcement, you know, the next thing that followed that is a McDonald's commercial, right? You know, this shit is just business as usual. You know, I call home after, uh, 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 to, you know, kind of talk to my family about uh, 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 Brandon's death and his execution because they were, you know, obviously worried about me or thinking about me. And I call home to let them know that I was doing all right. And, and they told me, man, keep your cases going viral. And I was like, you know, you know, you know, we've been doing a lot of work, you and I, Jess, and all of us, Amy and everybody, Brian, you know, we all been, you know, working, you know, doing, putting in a lot of work over this past summer, so I thought it may have something to do with that. I didn't think it would have something to do with, 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 with Brandon's execution, but obviously, as, you know, that's where it comes from. You know, they're telling me over 60,000 people signed the petition, over 1,000 people, you know, watched the, my documentary, you know, so it, 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 you know, it took me a minute to take all that in, you know, to take all that in and try to kind of suss out the connection between these two things. And it just dawned on me that, you know, you know, people are responding because, you know, Brandon and I are connected. I saw that yesterday. You wrote a little letter in response in regard to what happened to Brandon. And in that letter, you wrote, Brandon, I want you to know that your life mattered, brother. And that this system, which has been a noose around so many of our necks, is going to change. Your death was not in vain. Where do you find uh, the strength and optimism when there's so it's so hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel when you when you get news like the news that came came about this week? Yeah, yeah. Uh, people ask me that all the time, Wally, and. It's hard really to supply an answer, but um, the best I can say, the best the, the best I can say is that it has a lot to do with Vanish Point, I think. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm standing in the same line Brandon was in. And so I'm looking at it from a different angle. You know, and plus I've had over 27 years to get used to the ideal of dying. So that uh, uh, don't really hold out the same fear as someone who is removed from this situation. You know, I don't look at it as uh, as like an individual thing. It's like a marathon, or you know, it's like a, a, a relay race. And Brandon is, you know, we have these batons, and 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 and, and, and the goal is to carry it forward. You know. Um, like I said, I didn't even know Brandon until a couple of weeks ago. I hadn't even heard his name. And yet his death impacted my life. That's because we connected. And so I took, you know, the upswell from his execution as him passing the baton. And I accepted it. And it's my job from my perspective to carry it forward. It's not my job to keep these people from killing me, Wally. It's my job to prevent these people from stopping me from living my life. That's my job. You know, I mean, 
mean, it's sad. You know, of course it's sad, you know, that the brother had to lose his life. But we are leaving this place. And we have to take the fear out of that. We have to take the mystery out of that. And, and as James Ball would say, seek to earn our death by confronting with passion the conundrum, the injustice of this life. You know, so that's what that's what I'm a, I'm a, I'm a really try to do. You know, it's just you know just keep moving forward without fear. And it's not really that I'm optimistic, so to speak. You know, it's that I, I'm trying to be realistic about my chances. I don't think I'm better than Emmett Till. I don't think my life is more valuable than George Floyd's life, than Breonna Taylor's life. But the thing I can do that they can no longer do is speak, and so that's what I'm doing. The thing that I can do that they can no longer do is fight, so that's what I'm doing. And I'm going to do it to death, man. I'm going to do it that I have no breath in my body. You know, and I just want people to, you know, that, you know, not only send in, you know, sign the petition, but get engaged. You know, because people are dying who could be saved. You saying get engaged. I'm, I'm wondering if, if you're talking to somebody, somebody's listening to this and they're like, how can I get engaged? What would you, what, what would you want them to hear? What would you want to tell them? I mean, sign the petition is a first step. It's a good thing. You know, that petition ultimately will find its way to the governor's office, but we can't rely solely on the governor, the governor to do the right thing because he has political affiliations and aspirations and whatnot. You know, unfortunately, we live under the system of capitalism. Everything is a commodity. Even back in slavery, you have to buy your freedom. So, you know, in, in, in one sense, we have to come up with the funds to buy my freedom. And on the individual sense, you know, so we've been asking people to send in, you know, donations, whether it's four or five dollars, you know, whatever you can, whatever you can, you know, send to help me, you know, acquire some competent counsel. It, it would be appreciated. But more, but more than that, we have to get engaged about changing this system. You know, we're talking about the, the criminal justice system, the social structure, all these things are connected. And it all results from this unequal distribution of wealth. These are where all this stuff flows from, Wally. And people have to get in jail, but with people in power, with people who own society, what they have done is bought out certain people, poor people. And so people have to come together to see through these lies and then come together to change these things. And we can change these things. I'm, I'm wondering, where, where is God and spirituality um, exist within all of this? For you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, uh, uh, I mean, that's a good question. You know, I use the word God sometimes when I'm trying to explain things that I don't really have the words for. But obviously, or, or at least I hope it's obvious, you know, when, when, I, when I use the word God, I'm not thinking about the same thing as Donald Trump. I'm not thinking about a white man in some far off place called heaven, right? When I use the word God, I'm thinking more, uh, you know, in, 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 the, in the way Einstein was thinking about it, about a unified field theory, right? <laughs> you know, when I say the word God, people automatically assume that I'm pledging allegiance to whatever religion they believe in. But to be honest with you, Wally, I don't necessarily believe in a personal deity, right? I'm not a Christian or a Muslim or any kind of adherent to organized religion. I'm also not agnostic or atheist. You know, I believe that we are all connected. 
as individual cells inside the body of God, which to me is just another word for humanity, you know, that which we are as a totality. You know, I don't, I don't believe that someone is coming to save us. You know, we have to wake up and save ourselves. To do that, we have to stop believing in magic, man, and all this hocus pocus shit, and get down to doing the serious work, the hard work of changing, you know, this world that we live in. We've been entrusted with this world. You know, so, you know, uh, it's, it's a prayer that uh, I learned in my early 20s from this thing called the Fruit Gathering. And uh, my older brother taught it to me. And it kind of kind of um, give you a sense of how I, I, I look at the whole thing. And it says, let me not pray to be sheltered from dangers, but to be fearless in facing them. Let me not beg for the stilling of my pain, but for the heart to conquer it. Let me not look for allies on life's battlefield, but to my own strength. Let me not crave and anxious fear to be saved, but hope for the patience to win my freedom. Grant me that I may not be a coward. Feeling your mercy in my success alone, but let me find the grasp of your hand in my struggles. So that's how I see God, not as someone to, you know, to, to shelter me from days, but to, you know, to, to, to give me the heart to, to conquer these things. You know, I hope for the patience to win my freedom, to hold on to myself in the meantime, so that I could arrive at that place should it come intact. That's important to me. And even when we talk about the graphs of the hand, I'm talking about humanity. And this is where how I take, you know, the, 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 all these people signing up my signing up signing my petition and whatnot. That's affirmations to me. That's God's hand grabbing my hand and letting me know that I'm not alone in my struggle. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. You know, and so so that's what I mean when I talk about God. You know, you know, I'm not talking about, you know, something that we have to wait for, something that we have to, you know, uh, 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 make deals with. I'm just talking about that what we as a whole can do. We as a whole, I believe, can change this world. I believe that. You know, and not only am I believe that, I'm, 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 everything that I do is based on that, on, on that principle, on that faith. You know, I'm stepping out on the water based solely on that, man. And, and so far, you know, people have responded, you know, have found something solid to stand on every time, you know, but you have to get the fear out of the equation, because what do we got to lose? We got a whole world of game, man, if we just dare, you know, and, and cultivate our nerve. That's the thing that we, we, we should be doing, brother. That's the thing that I hope that anybody listening to this, that we, us, together, not individually, but together, we can change things. That's where the power truly resides in all of us working together towards a common goal. That's what we need to be doing, brother. That's what we should be doing. Mm -hmm.